Lord Jesus, we do indeed ask that you would speak, for we, your servants, are listening. But even though we're listening, we need your help to, to really hear, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, and not just in our hearts, but through our whole lives. Lord, you have something to say to each of us today, and when you say things, when you speak things, it's not in vain, it doesn't return void. And so we pray that you would speak. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I wanted to say, maybe that's God calling, and he has something to say. I mean, maybe we should answer that one. Well, what comes to mind when I say the word Unity. Unity. Given where we are in the election cycle, maybe we think about the unity or honestly the lack of unity in our country. Or maybe we think about it in regards to a particular political party, the unity of this party or that. Or we might think about marital or family unity as as a way to um, think about the health of those relationships. And then we certainly face issues of unity in the workplace Is our team or our business, our school, our firm, is it unified around a vision, around a purpose? Are people working well together? Well, what about Christian unity? What what feelings or images does that phrase evoke for you? Is it something that excites you, something that, that you've really worked in your life to achieve? Or is it something that concerns you? Honestly, When I hear people talk about Christian unity, I find myself suspicious. Because too often, efforts towards unity involve compromising truth for the sake of the so-called unity. And so that's one reaction that I have, but at the same time, I'm convicted over and over when I read Jesus' words in places like John 17. He's praying to the Father. We're getting to see the heart of our Lord on display. What is it that he really wants for his followers, his immediate followers, and the followers that come after those followers? That's us. And he prays about unity, doesn't he? He prays about the oneness. And it makes me wonder if Protestant evangelicals, that I count myself one, if we have um, not taken his words seriously enough. We're very good at protesting. We're very good at dividing, but we don't seem to always know what unity looks like. We'll bring unity down a little further into the local church, and for many of us, that can bring up painful memories and experiences. If we've been in the church long enough, we've probably been hurt by the church, and we've probably hurt others. We may have left a church or a denomination that we loved because of some type of conflict, disagreement, struggle towards unity. I've watched, and I'm sure you have as well, faithful Christians begin to hurl stones at other people who I thought were faithful Christians because of differences, theology or practice or doctrine. Regretfully, I've thrown some stones myself. 
And I've had some stones thrown at me, and I have scars from those. And so this unity conversation, it's not a hypothetical scenario. It's not a theory. We don't set up a committee or a task force to talk about it. It's deeply personal. It's something that really is the essence of working out the great commandment to love God and to love one another. And therefore, it's extremely messy. It doesn't fit very nicely in a box because it involves relationships between broken, sinful people. Last week, we started back in the book of Ephesians. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, sort of this transition, where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's his way of transitioning from the first half of the letter to the second half. If you remember from last week, in the first half of the letter, Paul's telling us about this new identity, this new calling we have in Christ. And then in the second half, he tells us what it means to live out that identity. And I suggested that we can really capture what's going on there with these words, be yourself. Because we are new creations in Christ, our behavior, our ethics, what we do flows naturally out of who we are. Well, one of the first things that Paul will do in this second half of the letter, the letter that we're typically say, okay, now this is ethics, one of the first things that he tells us is to pursue unity. And he's not drawing that as just one ethical teaching out of a hat full of them, say, well, that's a good enough place to start. It flows logically out of what he's written in chapters one through three. Recall that Paul is writing to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles who now find themselves in a common church because of their faith in Christ. These are two groups who had historically not gotten along, and that's an understatement. In chapter 2, Paul has told them the astounding news that because of the gospel, because of the cross, God has done something new in their midst. They are no longer two. They are one. One new humanity. One new man out of the two. These new kind of things. These Christ followers. The cross abolished hostility. It abolished division. You're now one body with Christ as the head. That's who you are as a Christian. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, however you came into this thing, that's who you are now. And so Paul in chapter four will begin by speaking about unity. Right from the get-go, we are reminded we are not solo Christians. It's not just me and Jesus on a journey together. We're included in this one body, the people of God, and we need to protect the unity of this sacred creation called the church. And so this morning, I want to consider the character, the command, and the content of Christian unity. The character, command, and content of Christian unity. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul's going to begin with character, in verse 2, where he tells us to live, to walk with each other, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's the character that gives rise to unity, is it not? Individuals and communities that pursue humility, that embody gentleness, 
that walk out patience and bearing with one another in love. Those are the individuals and communities that promote and protect unity. Humility. Humility reminds us that we're all sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. You've heard the expression that it's level ground at the foot of the cross. To truly be Christian is to be humble because the cross itself humbles us. Tells us how broken and sinful we were, how we couldn't rescue ourselves. Humility also teaches us that no one individual or church has all the answers. No one has perfect theology or doctrine. A lot of times the the source of the division is spiritual knowledge. Becomes this pride. Paul writes to the Corinthians that the knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It is good to be humble in what we think we know. All of us can be wrong. Maybe you've had an argument with a friend or a spouse or a child, and and in that argument, you were 100% sure you were right, and then you have that moment later where you realize, oh, I wasn't right. We can all be wrong about things, and so we need to, to walk with humility. You see, pride, in so many different ways, isolates us from others. Because a prideful person is like oil in the living water of Christian community. They just won't mix. They will always stand apart. Whether it's subtle or overt, pride will claim that it doesn't need others to learn, to grow, to become mature in Christ. But humility does the exact opposite. It draws us together. It first does that because it draws us to Jesus. It says we, we all need Jesus. And then secondly, we learn that we need each other to grow, to, to be complete, to be who we are in Christ. Gentleness. It can also be translated or it's related to the word meekness. We think about meekness as weakness. They even rhyme. But nothing could be further from the truth. There's two individuals that are described in the Bible as meek, Moses and Jesus. Neither one was weak or flimsy. The power of God was present on both of them, and it was precisely that power that made them gentle and meek. You see, the best definition of meekness is trusting in God for vindication, not ourselves. Trusting in God for vindication, not ourselves, not going after it ourselves. And that's essential for unity. Because when we try to vindicate ourselves, win the argument, validate our position, we threaten unity. But when we are gentle and meek, trusting God for vindication and justice, we allow unity to flourish. Think about it like this. Jesus was right 100% of the time. Every thought he had, everything he said, everything he did, his cause was totally just. But had he sought vindication over his enemies in his own manner, in his own time, there would have been no salvation, no unity between a triune God and sinners. Instead, he submitted himself to the horrid injustice and mistreatment of the cross. And he allowed his father to vindicate him. In the resurrection. That's what the resurrection was. It was a stamp of approval of the father on the son saying, everything my son has done is pleasing to me. He is the name that is above all names. 
It was vindication, but it was done by God. And so it allowed there to be unity, salvation. We got to be included now. No matter how right you think your cause or position is, don't abandon gentleness. This doesn't mean that you can't speak even passionately about what you believe is true and right and good. Jesus certainly did that, but you're trusting in God for vindication. You don't have to be rude or mean or aggressively validate yourself. That just divides. You trust in God. Allow him to bring vindication to you in his own way, in his right time. That might be at the end of time. But if you allow him to do it, he can work it out together with unity. You take it into your own hands, even if your cause is just, and you could do great destruction to the body of Christ. I want to treat the last character trait together. Patiently bearing with one another in love. To preserve unity in the body of Christ. That's our primary focus, but think about it in a marriage. Think about it in a friendship or with a family member. To preserve unity, we must put up with a lot. Amen? We just do. We just put up with a lot. Did my wife say amen really loud? I think she did. Speak us the truth. Just because we disagree or dislike someone's perspective or practice doesn't mean we go away. Doesn't mean we just say, I'm out. We bear with them. We're patient. We know that a person, a church, even a denomination does not change quickly. It usually involves a lot of time, a lot of patient love. Sometimes they don't change at all, do they? We don't throw in the towel. Our temptation when we get really angry is to say, I'm just not going to put up with it anymore. That's exactly what Paul is calling us to do. You keep putting up with it. You keep being patient. You keep bearing with one another in love for the sake of unity. So that's the character. That's what unity dresses up itself as. It's humble. It's gentle and meek. It patiently bears with one another in love. That's how we clothe ourselves at all times, but especially when we're in conflict, when something threatens unity. Second, we have the command of unity. And we see it in verse 3, where Paul will write that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the ESV translation. Another says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Another says, be diligent to preserve the unity. So this isn't a casual, optional practice. It is intentional. It is passionate. The word that's being translated here has this connotation of making haste. The importance of an action demands that we make haste. And that's what Paul is saying about pursuing unity. And Jesus will reinforce this, or really Jesus is the originator of this, on the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about, you're at the altar, you're making a gift. Basically, you're in worship. How sacred is that? How important is that? And then you remember all of a sudden that somebody might have something against you. You might have offended them. You stop. You leave your gift at the altar. What? You interrupt your worship? Yes, you interrupt your worship. And then you go and you talk to them and you work it out and you make sure unity is okay. That's how important it is. I was at a pastor's conference a few years ago. 
and I uh, looked across the room, and there was this other pastor in the room, and uh, we, thankfully we didn't have any open personal conflict. We weren't we were fighting in that sense, but um, there was definitely a, a spirit of divisiveness between us. I knew there was some pride in my heart. There might have been some in his. There were some things kind of keeping us um, separate. We were in different groups of churches, and I, and I felt this, um, this little nudge, that little kind of annoying nudge you feel sometimes, that nudge, um, and, I, and I, I listened to it, and I said, okay, nudge, what do, you, what do you want me to do? And it says, go, go and talk to him and talk about the pride in your heart, pursue unity. I said, no, 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 it's because we're not, we're not fighting, it's fine. No, no. <laughs> and then I heard these words, make every effort. Make every effort, eagerness, haste, diligence. And so I humbled myself and I went and I, I spoke with him and it was a good moment. We didn't have a big like love, cry, you know, teary session, but it was a good moment. But here's the best part. That day, we, we just sowed some seeds of peace and unity. Four years later, I'm watching fruit come from that relationship that I know goes back to that act of unity. Friends, is there a person in this church is there a person in your life? Is there some issue in your marriage or with a child or family member that threatens unity? Make haste and go and address it. The word for maintain unity can also be translated to guard or to keep. So I want you to imagine a castle wall. Inside that wall is something beautiful and sacred, the body of Christ with all its relationships, full of warmth, affection, unity. Outside that wall are countless enemies that want to destroy what's inside. Need a visual picture? Imagine Lord of the Rings, two towers. If you've seen the movie or read the book, they're all holed up at Helm's Deep, right? They're a strong castle built into a mountain and they're behind those walls and they're on the wall and they're looking out and they're seeing thousands and thousands of thousands of orcs coming towards them wanting to destroy him. That's a picture of what's going on in the church, friends. The unity is inside. We must guard it and protect it. If something tries to come over that wall or under it or through it, we need to stand in the gap and protect our unity. Why? Because our unity is an expression of the unity of God himself. Back to John 17. Jesus prayed that his followers would be one. Like what? Like he and the Father are one. And then he goes on and he extends it and he connects it mission to unity. And he says, listen, as the result of unity, the world's going to know that the Father sent the Son. That's how sacred and powerful the unity of the church is. And so we guard and we keep watch. And we should not be surprised that the evil one will throw everything he has at us at that wall. What kind of things will come at us? What kind of things threaten unity? Unforgiveness. Maybe the biggest one. Unforgiveness. If somebody wrongs you and they seek forgiveness, you must forgive them. But I realize we live in a world where that's a great scenario when that happens, right? When someone wrongs us and they actually come and say they're sorry and do the log work and say, I got this in my eye. And well, that really doesn't happen all that often. I mean, it does sometimes, but more often, I think in our really hard conflicts, both people just dig their feet in and nobody comes and says they're sorry. Even then, we can do work 
with Jesus on the cross so that we're at peace with that person. Even then, we can decide we're not going to just nudge, uh, nurse the grudge, excuse me. We're not just going to feed into the bitterness. We're going to say, I'm going to have mercy. And I'm going to, to forgive in my heart as much as I can. I can't have reconciliation. I can't have transactional forgiveness until that person has repented, but I stand ready. And so I can bless them. And I can say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We don't withhold mercy. When we do, we destroy ourselves and we threaten unity. Another one that threatens unity, a big one, false teaching. It's always been the case. False teaching threatens the church because it undermines the very thing that unifies us. We're going to come back to that one. Gossip and slander. It's important that we believe the best about each other and we not pass along damaging or potentially untrue information about someone. Face-to-face conversations when things need to be talked about are the best. Pride. Talked about how spiritual knowledge can puff us up. In college, I um, started reading some theology for the first time, a dangerous prospect. (laughs) And I began to argue with other Christian friends. And I arrived at a point, I'm not kidding, where I thought I knew all that there was to know about God. It's ridiculous, but I did. I, in my pride, I thought I'd read like two books or something, and I was like, I got it figured out. And then I have this other image years later. I'm standing in the library at my seminary, and I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, I don't know anything. I mean, look at all these books that have been written. But we idolize our theology. I know I do. We grow prideful about it. It becomes a source of division in the body of Christ. And so this word is especially for those who have really pursued education or Bible study, who are passionate about theology. I thank God for you. God needs you in the church. He wants you here, but be careful because it can become an idol and it can become a wedge in the body of Christ. So on the one hand, um, we need to guard against false teaching, but on the other hand, we need to avoid getting overly dogmatic in our theology, in a way that begins to divide us. How do you walk that line? A lot of wisdom, a lot of grace, need for the Spirit's help to walk that fine line. So we have the character of unity, we have the command of unity, and then finally, Paul gives us the content of unity. Beginning in verse 4, chapter 4, he will um, describe um, unity using the word one seven times. He points to the one body, the one baptism, the one hope, the one spirit, and so on. You see, our unity in Christ, it's not something that we create. Something we protect and we maintain and we guard, but it's not something that we create. It's a gift. It derives from God himself. What Paul is doing here is he's simply pointing out that to be divided in the body of Christ is illogical because the body of Christ isn't actually divided. There's only one Lord, there's only one baptism in spirit and body and so on. Well, I want to focus this on verse 5, where Paul says there's one faith. There's one faith. I think this is critical for unity because um, there must be some content that we are unified around. Susan Phillips, Christian writer, she uses this imagery of a wagon wheel. And she says that the Christian community is like the rim of that wheel. The spokes are the connections to Christ of those various people in the community. 
and the hub is Christ himself. A wagon wheel with no spokes and no hub is useless. Do you know what you call it? A hula hoop. (laughs) You can't put any weight on it. It's not going to go anywhere. You can play around and have some fun, but you're not going to do anything serious. So too is a Christian community that does not have Christ at the center and that does not have strong connections to him all the way around. So what are we unified around? Well, we could go through each of the ones and talk about it, but to use Paul's word, it's our one faith in Christ. Our one faith. Now, sometimes we talk about faith in this really generic and and highly personal way. You have a faith and I have a faith, but Paul says there's only one faith. We don't get to personalize our versions of the faith. This isn't Burger King Christianity. Have it your way. But I'm afraid that's exactly what's happening even in Bible-believing churches and communities. This this subtle relativism has seeped into the church. This truth that, well, it's okay for you, it's okay for me. People are, are, are creating their own versions of that where they say, well, my God is a God of fill in the blank. Have you heard that? my God is a God of, or the God and I believe in wouldn't do this or that, or I believe that it's morally okay to do this and that. Everyone gets to customize their own version with which they feel comfortable. Paul says, no, there's only one faith. It's the faith of the God who has revealed himself in history and through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the content of the one faith. That's what unifies us. Now, to be fair, this this is a rather large book. In my version, it's over a thousand pages long, written over hundreds and hundreds of years, many different authors, and yes, faithful Bible-believing Christians sometimes disagree about how to interpret certain parts of this book. But don't be fooled. We're still able to identify a very coherent and robust robust content for the one faith. The book actually speaks fairly coherently about who God is and his purpose in the world. So yes, we're always going to have some points of disagreement, but the big stuff is fairly easy to identify. And let me give you some guidelines of, well, how do you bring together those big things, that content? Well, when the church speaks with one voice and that agrees with a straightforward reading of the text, these are the things that begin to form the core content of our faith. And that's why the creeds are so invaluable. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creeds, they're good summaries of what the scriptures teach and what the church has historically confessed with one voice. Those are a foundation. So let's consider just a few examples. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's core to our faith. It's in the creeds. The church speaks about it with one voice. The text of scripture is clear about it. Jesus didn't rise in your hearts. Jesus didn't swoon and then later came back to life. He died in his body. He was raised bodily. That's core to our faith. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, then their faith, whatever it might be, is not the one faith of which the Apostle Paul speaks. It's not a Christian faith. I found it interesting that Donald Trump criticized the Pope when the Pope raised some questions about Trump's faith. And Trump's response was, and I quote, for a religious leader to question a person's faith is disgraceful. Well, they were 
talking about something else. But might I suggest that that's exactly what a religious leader is supposed to do? I mean, that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's bearing witness to the content of the one faith. And if someone's beliefs don't agree with that content, content you, you point it out. You raise some questions. This is what it is. Your actions, words, beliefs don't match with it. So here's a question. Are you a Christian? You don't do that in a mean or vindictive way. It's just to say, hey, listen, we don't get to make this stuff up. Christianity doesn't mean what you want it to mean. It has a core. It has a content. Resurrection is part of it. The deity of Christ is part of it. The uniqueness of Christ as the only way to the Father is part of it. The Trinity is part of it. The reality of sin, the need for salvation under no other name in heaven is part of it. You cannot deny those things and claim that you are a Christian. Now let me add to that just pastorally to say we all struggle with doubt. Okay, we all struggle with doubt. That's a real part of the life of faith. And so if you are here today and you say, I sometimes struggle to believe in the resurrection. It's never happened before. It doesn't seem likely. What about science? What a, I, I just, I believe it. I believe, I, but I struggle. Let's walk through that together. Keep praying. Keep um, pursuing God and asking him to give you assurances. That's a different kind of thing than saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't believe in that. Do you see the difference between those two? Today, some of the most divisive issues of the church are around sexuality and marriage. Those aren't just hypothetical things, right? Those are real things, dividing the church, dividing denominations, dividing families, dividing our society. And some would suggest that Okay, those are important conversations, but they're secondary. We can still be unified in the one faith even if we disagree. Others say, no, if we can't agree on this, then we're not unified. Which is it? Are these moral issues important but secondary? Are they somehow connected to the, the things that unify us, that content of our faith? Well, let me go back just to, to the guidelines that I offered. In regards to human sexuality and marriage, has the church historically spoken with one voice? And does that witness agree with a plain reading of Scripture? That's the question we need to ask. There's a new book out called Unchanging Witness. It's written by a church historian and a biblical scholar. A biblical scholar happens to attend our church. And it tackles this question. And the name, as, as, as the title suggests, Church Tradition, Teaching of the Church, Scripture Agree. There's an unchanging witness to both. Gay marriage is not marriage as God intended it. Practicing homosexuality is a sin. Well, what about the creeds, you might say? What about the creeds? Those don't come up in the creeds. Well, at first glance, I think that's true. But actually, I want to suggest they do come up in the creeds, and I'll show you how. Both the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed begin with the statement that God is the creator of heaven and earth. God is the creator of heaven and earth. Where do we learn about sexuality, gender, marriage? Genesis 1 and 2. When someone asked Jesus a question, what about marriage? What about divorce? They were actually asking. He says, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2 when God sorted all these things out, when he settled this. God creates human life in his own image. And he creates human beings with gender as a beautiful and essential part of their identity, part of how they uniquely get to image God. He created them, male and female. 
And then he created marriage where one man, one woman would come together to form one flesh for the purpose of procreation, filling the earth. That's what it means for God to be the maker of heaven and earth. And so when we take the right ourselves to determine our own gender, not a hypothetical, Monday was voted on by the Charlotte City Council. Not a hypothetical, friends. When we take the right to determine our own gender, we define marriage as we wish, we practice sexuality in any way that our desires lead us, we are making these decisions. We are saying God is not the maker of heaven and earth. I make these decisions. We'll dress it up, though. We'll put noble phrases around it, like civil rights or freedom of choice or equality, but that's not what this is. Can we just undress it? Can we just say it's a human being acting against God and a society saying, sure, we'll validate that in law? So these moral issues are are actually not just moral issues. They're not just ethical issues that we can disagree on. They're authority issues. That's what's caused the division. They bring the real issue to the surface, which is who do we believe has the right, the authority to determine marriage, gender, sexuality, and a whole host of other things? It's not anti-gay. It's not homophobic. It's not hateful. It's just living in submission to the God who created these things and who ordered them rightly. It's one thing for the world to say, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a Christian God anyway, and so I don't care what he has to say about this. I mean, at least they're being authentic to themselves. But for a Christian or for a church or denomination to affirm, to bless, to normalize something that God has declared unlawful through his scriptures, through his church, through an unchanging witness is a direct assault on the authority of God. It's not just a moral issue that we can disagree about. Christians can take the word of God seriously, I believe, and disagree about baptism. They can take God's word seriously and disagree about women's ordination and and how that gets worked out in the church or the meanings of the sacraments or the end times and millennial views. We can still have unity. Those are important conversations. We need to pursue those things, but we can still walk in unity. But we can't start messing with marriage. We can't mess with sexuality and gender. Those issues have been settled by God in creation and the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict himself. He's not going to reverse his position. He's not going to start speaking contrary to the Bible. So Paul has shown us the character, the command, the content of unity. And we must understand these things so that we can clothe ourselves in humility, gentleness, patience, and love, so that we can stand on the castle wall and watch diligently, so that we can know what unity is and what unity is not, and so that we can hold on to that content of our faith in the face of great pressure to compromise. I wonder how you are hearing this word today. Because I imagine that for each of us, the application might be a bit different. Some of us need to have some time in prayer about the character of Christian unity. We need to look into our hearts and repent of places where we have been overly divisive and aggressive and and argumentative and we're asserting ourselves or elevating secondary things, making those primary things. We need to just think about character. Others, we, we need to think about the command 
that we have not been diligent, we have not been hasty to go and to address unity. And still others, we need to think about the content. We need to spend some time in the scriptures, in prayer, in counsel with others, and really get our minds clear on what is the content of Christian unity. Wherever that takes us, I encourage you to pray into it. It has everything to do with who we are as a people, as the people of God, and how we are to function in the world. It's no surprise that from here, Paul's going to go into the body of Christ being the body. That's where we're going next week. It's beautiful. It's functioning. It's out. It's speaking the truth in love, but you can't do it without unity. And so we have to hold these things up and pray that God would teach us. And so let's do so right now. Lord, these are heavy and hard times. And I know I've said some heavy and hard things. And I pray that you would come as the great shepherd of the sheep and that you would pastor all of us. That you would help us as we form thoughts and ideas, as you would help us as words rise up from our hearts and come across our tongues, that you would help us, Lord, know what it is to live in unity, to live as that expression of the oneness of the Father and the Son. It's a sacred thing. It's a sacred calling. We cannot do it without your grace, your power, your wisdom. So come now, Holy Spirit, for each individual here, pastor us, and for us as a church, lead us. We pray it in the name of the undivided God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.